All right, Trinity Church, it is great to see you on lawn, online today. Welcome on this 21st day of February. How are you doing? Good. You look good. This is great. It's awesome to see you today. Uh, my name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. You join us in a series in the book of John called Beckon, the God who invites us close. And so we're going to look today at some other opportunities to see actually John the baptizer recognize the greatness of Jesus and his desire to make much of him. And our goal is to walk away going, man, God, how can that be true in my life as well? So if you have a Bible today, if you want to make your way to John chapter three, it's going to be our last day in that chapter of John. And uh, Walker said earlier today on our uh, app, there are notes for you to be able to track with the message and uh, things you can fill in digitally. And then for those of you in home groups, kind of help you uh, in your conversations this week. Well, last week I had kind of teased out the idea that we are planning on making an indoor service option available soon. This week, I can give a little more clarity. That begins next Sunday. On the 28th of February, we'll have an indoor option. It will be at this nine o'clock hour. And we will also have simultaneously an outdoor option at nine o'clock as well. So more details are gonna be coming. I want you to track with me. You will find out more this week in my midweek video and in our e-news that goes out on Wednesday. If you don't typically get that, or you're not tracking with us on social media, this would be a great week to get online and figure out kind of what we're doing. And we've said it before, going into uh, this recent season, we were saying, hey, it, it's never been an issue at Trinity Church to have to literally change service times monthly based on weather and things like that. So we said, listen, the month before for what our plan is for the next month. In this initial time of being indoors, engaging the response, we will probably be changing options weekly in order to accommodate best what the need is. So I just want you to know that. But find out more this week on Wednesday. Our e-news will go out. If you're not signed up to do that, you can go right to the front of our webpage. And at the very top, under some basic information, you can it just says sign up for e-news here or watch us on social media this week on Facebook or on Instagram, and you'll see that midweek video and I'll have a lot more details. So anyways, this next Sunday, the 28th, we're planning on making that available. This Thursday, our women's prayer and praise event will also be indoors, just to kind of give us a test run at that and figure out some things of just some nuances with that. So anyways, we're looking forward to that. And again, what's beautiful, we actually want to go back to what we were doing pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, we had an indoor service, an outdoor service, and an online option. All of those were available. And so that's our hope, is simply to be able to go back. We don't believe that there is one necessarily categorically better than the other. We're just trying to provide some great options for our church family. All right? All right, so let's get back to it. We're in John chapter 3, and we're seeing this, um, this progression today kind of coming out of uh, the conversation we left off with last week. Last week, we looked at the greatest promise in the Bible. I was holding a sign up that was literally blowing towards banning while we were doing it. We had crazy wind. I'm so grateful that my weather app is so bad. It is supposed to be 48 with 30 mile an hour winds here right now. Praise the Lord that an app that rhymes with AccuWeather is not accurate, okay? Because I love the environment we're in right now. This is gorgeous today. But we're picking up right off those words from Jesus uh, interacting with Nicodemus, right into John, the gospel writer, actually, is the author of those words, for God so loved the world. 
And so today we pick it up in this next sequence and it's really gonna see in three stages, John the baptizer's followers are frustrated. They see a rivalry, they see it, John doesn't, between him and Jesus and they call that out. John says in the second segment today, uh, there's no rivalry at all. He's the one we should be focusing on. And then finally, we'll see some summary commentary from John the gospel writer again, just kind of summarizing the big themes from John chapter three. So our now what statement this week, what we wanna be mindful of, follow John's example by prioritizing Jesus's prominence in your life over your own interests. We wanna this week follow the example of John by prioritizing Jesus's prominence in our lives over our own interests. Number one in your notes, rivalry arises when people feel insecure about their standing. Rivalry arises when people feel insecure about their own standing. We're in John chapter three, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent time, some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Aon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. In parentheses, this was before John was put in prison. We'll see that later in John's gospel. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going out to him. All right, this is our first segment today that we're looking at. Note there's not a specific amount of time between when Jesus left the conversation and went out to this Judean wilderness, this countryside. So we're not totally sure how long, but we know it follows that. And in that, what I want you to see from the beginning is that Jesus spent some incredible time investing relationally into these new disciples into these new followers that had uh, taken uh, the stride in, in watching him and walking with him. So look at this in your notes. It's powerful to note that Jesus valued and relationally invested in the lives of his disciples. I want you to see that from the very beginning. Jesus was intentional and said, let's go out to a place where we can just be together, where I can invest in you. And I think that's powerful because so many times when it comes to ministry, we will think that it's primarily about sit there and listen to me talk. But we see that Jesus had much more to that. Jesus wanted to invest with them, wanted to spend time. That, that word it's, that we translate, spent some time, is actually the Greek word diatribe, that we get our English word diatribe from. Now that seems a little bit interesting because when we think diatribe, we think about some rant of passionate, you know, kind of almost yelling at someone or just going on and on. We've kind of made that word in our English language a little different than the Greek intent. The Greek word literally means, watch these meanings, this is the semantic range, to rub hard, to wear away, to consume, or to spend time. That's, a, that's an incredibly wide range of meanings. Like what in the world does that word mean in this context? Well, I found a great source. Listen to this explanation. Diatribo literally means to rub in. In the days of the New Testament, the word was commonly used, watch this uh, analogy, to describe breaking in a pair of sandals. So if you had a new pair of sandals, maybe made out of leather, and you begin walking and then they're slippery at first, they don't fit your foot just right. But over time, 
you've got a, probably a pair of, um, of leather flip-flops that over time, initially, they were really slippery. And, but now, if anyone else tries to put their foot in there, which, by the way, is not really smart anyway, but if they were, it's to the contour of your foot. They only work for you. And so that's the idea, this rubbing in and wearing in, but it happens over time. But watch this, but a more helpful analogy comes from cooking. When cooking a steak, a chef will rub spices and sauces into the meat so the flavor soaks through the entire steak. This helps us picture the kind of time Jesus spent with his disciples in the opening verse. Jesus intentionally rubbed into the disciples letting his word and character soak through them. So it's a powerful analogy. We kind of get that in our mind. We can see how that works. So to be clear, Jesus didn't take them out to the wilderness to go on an extended rant <laughs> and just tell them how it was. He, he invested in them and he definitely gave them the opportunity to soak him in. And that's just a powerful thing. And that what's powerful about that is not just the content or the method, but the simple reality of time. Quality time rarely happens, but it often will come in the midst of quantity time. So where there's a lot of time, there's often opportunities for quality moments. But if we gear ourselves up to go, I've got to make so much of this experience. This has to be quality with my spouse. This has to be quality with my kids. Often it doesn't go the way we'd intended and we're frustrated. But Jesus went out and spent quantity time and in the quantity time, quality was there. I think of the apostle Paul, who I think his approach to ministry was similar and was summed up by one of my favorite verses from 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but this last phrase, but our lives as well. Shared with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Let's take a look at a map. You've got a map up here on the screen, and I think it might be maybe in your app as well. But really what I want you to notice, we said two different places, two locations, baptizing is going on. You'll note at the top, kind of below the Sea of Galilee in the region called Samaria, that's where John is baptizing most likely at this point. And much further down, just outside of Jerusalem, is where Jesus was baptizing. So on the Jordan River, John up higher, more northern in the Samaria area, Jesus just outside of Jerusalem and the Judean countryside. Now looking ahead to chapter four, which we'll get to next Next week, it's interesting to note, John kind of presents here that Jesus was baptizing, but then in four, look at what he says in the first couple verses. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So maybe what was going on is as Jesus is out in this wilderness, in this countryside, pouring into his disciples, they're soaking him in. They are the ones who are actually being commissioned to baptize people during this time. And we'll get to chapter four a little bit more next week. So before the ensuing conflict, let's remind ourselves a little bit about what baptism was in this era, right? This is before Jesus has gone to the cross, before the empty tomb. So what was baptism in this segment under the ministry of John the Baptist? Remember that we've said this caused a great commotion because the, the religious leaders of the day were wondering what on earth John was doing baptizing Jews. 
Up until that point, the only reason you would baptize anyone was a non-Jew, a Gentile, who wanted to be included into the Jewish community. And baptism was one of the main modes of proselytizing, of this idea of becoming a convert to Judaism. So the Pharisees and the scribes are blown away. Why are Jews getting baptized? That makes zero sense. They're already in the community and they don't need this. But John said, I came to baptize for two main reasons. People who are, who are identifying with the coming kingdom of God, where John says, I've come to announce Messiah. He's coming in our lifetime, in our generation. Literally centuries, generations have been waiting for Messiah. And John is so bold as to say, he's coming now. I'm going to point him out. So people were being baptized who wanted to align with this idea that Messiah was among us. But also it was a baptism of repentance. Of people coming and saying, I have failed in keeping the law everyone had. But I recognize that and I bring myself in this state of understanding I need forgiveness and I'm being baptized as well. So within that, that's kind of what John's baptism was all about, was identification and repentance. Now you heard Walker say earlier today that we're actually having a baptism class in three weeks. And baptism on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, the era in which we live, we, re we really refer to it as believer's baptism. The idea that once I have put my faith in Jesus, once I have recognized he is the true one and only son of God, then I actually get baptized. Interestingly enough, for somewhat of the same reason of identification. I'm following in obedience and I wanna be identified with this greater group of people who themselves have been in the waters of baptism. But watch, our baptism doesn't recognize I want to convert from one religion to another. It says I wanna be identified with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the picture that's painted in baptism today. Just so we see this, by the way, this is not um, meant to be anything but just a demonstration. When we say it's identifying with those who've been baptized already as believers, would you do this if you're on lawn? If you've been baptized as a Christian, would you just raise your hand? I just want you to see when we say identification, that's what we're talking about. People who have said, I've done that and I want to follow Jesus with my life and I've taken that step of obedience and I want to be identified with the body. So that's why we do that. So if you're at all interested in baptism and you put your faith in Jesus and, and that's really just a next step for you, then I'd encourage you, come out to the 14th to our, our baptism class. There's no obligation to get baptized. Just find out what it's about. And then we're real excited. We're doing another series response service on the 28th of March. And at that point, we'll do our baptisms that day. So we're excited for that. So a conversation breaks out with John's followers who are baptizing in that more Northern region. And, and the idea, the, the issue at point is ceremonial washing. We don't really read much more about that, but somehow it prompts within the, John's followers. Maybe they heard, well, Jesus doesn't put a lot of credibility in ceremonial washing. And they're like, what? And then they find out that Jesus is getting this following and they go, what? And they run back to John and they go, John, that guy that you baptized, that guy that you were first, he's come late to the party he's getting more recognition than you. What's, what's the deal? Like that seems out of balance. That is not the way it's supposed to go. You are first, he's come after you. He should be kind of in line, but you're the, you're the head honcho. 
And John goes, you've got it all wrong. That's not at all what this was supposed to be. So because they were finding an inappropriate value in their association with John, but they weren't listening. We'll see in just a minute what John had been saying all along. Jesus' growing notoriety became a threat to them because Jesus wasn't, quote, their guy. They'd surrounded around John that they're gonna realize they picked the wrong rivalry because when John hears the news, he goes, good. That's going exactly as it pl it's planned. Number two in your notes, when we understand who Jesus is, we not only prioritize him, but we gain an accurate view of ourselves. When we understand the greatness, the gravity, the um, just immense truth of the deity of Jesus, we not only prioritize him, but we gain an accurate view of ourselves. Read on in John 3, 27. To this, to this idea, Jesus has a bigger following. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. So John provides three ideas here to help his followers understand you're, you're missing the point. This is no rivalry. A rivalry is when you have two groups who are vying for the same attention. John's like, you've missed the whole point. I'm not vying for that attention at all. I'm pointing to him. That's what my whole ministry has been. He talks about God sovereignly giving us influence in others' lives for God's purpose. He talks about how he says, I've told you from all along, I'm pointing to the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And things are going exactly as they should have. And now as a result, I must have less of the focus and he must have more. Let's begin with under John's understanding of God being supreme and sovereign over the kinds of influence that we have over others' lives and what kind of roles we occupy according to his plan. I think that first sentence in his response is so powerful. You can tell he did not have a selfish ambition. Well, this is a bummer. My stock is on the decline. That was a problem because I was always trying to make a brand. <laughs> I was always about me. John's like, just the opposite. God, God gives us influence and we use it for his purposes, not for our own. And I think that's so powerful. The idea that this comes from heaven. Paul said something similar to this notion when he was correcting the Corinthian church because they were propping up various leaders to, to really create rivalry around fan groups. It was a mess. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Kind of talking about influence. What influence do you even have that God didn't give you first? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Paul writes to them in a chapter previous about the whole problem of putting God's messengers, of putting God's servants up in a position of limelight, up in a position of the stage that they never were established for. Their, their goal was never to make it about them. It was always to reflect back to how does this prop up? How does this demonstrate? How do we be preoccupied with the greatness of Jesus? So in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, what after all is Apollos, one of those that they had elevated? And what is Paul talking about himself as though there was a rivalry? Only servants 
through whom you came to believe as the Lord had assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but watch, but God has been making it grow. And here's the key. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God, only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. So they have a reason and a purpose and they will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So what basically Paul was saying to the Corinthian church, where there is rivalry within the body of Christ around various leaders, the minute we begin talking and acting like that, we have missed the plot. It's not about that person, that speaker, that leader. It's always about the God who is the one doing the work and simply using them as resources, using them as tools in people's lives. Carson says this really well related to um, what John was not believing, the attitude John the baptizer was not having. He says it this way, deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in that instance betray not only unbelief and faithfulness, but the worst form of perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. That's so well said. That would have been the problem if John would have said, hey, we better do something about this. My brand is decreasing, never a bit. John's like, this is exactly as it ought to go. And then his response uh, reminds us of what the author had communicated when John says, hey, I, you've heard me been saying all along, I'm pointing to the Messiah, I'm not him. And we saw that early on when John, the gospel writer said this in John 1, 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So John, the gospel writer, had great clarity of the purpose and the mission of John the baptizer. But John the baptizer understood his mission well too. In John 1 verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said that a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me which is really confusing to understand, but John's saying the guy who came after me was all along before me because he's God. He's never not existed. I'm just a blip on the radar and he's the one I'm pointing to. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So John is simply stating that this is the fulfillment of what he's been saying all along of his purpose in coming was to identify and make much of Messiah. John utilizes an example that we, it really works well for us, really the idea of that of a best man. He's kind of using this wedding illustration and he refers to himself, I'm not the groom, I'm not the one who's light, the brighter the groom today, the light is not on me, I'm the best man over on the side helping make all this happen. And the last thing that a best man would ever want to do is to upstage the bride and the groom. But that's not to say it's never happened before, right? I did a little bit of internet research. I've never actually been a part of a wedding where this has happened. I've, I've obviously been married and then I've done a lot of weddings as a pastor. I've never seen this, but I found a couple examples that you can understand. That's why best men don't upstage the bride and the groom. In the first account, 
uh, one wedding, the best man's toast, he raised a glass. And instead of saying the bride and the groom's first names, he said the groom and the groom's ex-girlfriend's names. Not good. There was a moment of stunned silence, kind of like you right now. And I'm not sure the best man ever was ever fully exonerated for that mistake. So that went really bad. Another example is this, um, a good toast should enhance the event, not steal the show. But Denise watched in horror as the best man at the wedding she was attending captured everyone's attention in the most inappropriate way possible. He said, I'm so inspired by Carl and Sarah's wedding that I've decided to propose to my woman too. And he recalls, or she recalls, that he made good on that promise immediately. With that, he got down on one knee and proposed to his girlfriend in the middle of his toast of this couple. Aside from the obvious upstaging of the bride and groom and stealing the spotlight of their special moment, which was supposed to be all about them, his own mother had a cow, so it's pretty good. So just a word, if you're ever in that best man role, those are good things not to do, okay? And John understood that well. John said, hey, this isn't about me. This isn't my day. This is about them. And it brings me great joy. When I hear the groom's voice, I get excited because that's who everyone should be listening to. When I hear his voice, I'm attentive to it because my job is to serve him, to make much of him today, not myself. This idea of God's people being likened to God's bride is not even something new or something just from the New Testament. Look back in the prophet Isaiah. He says this in Isaiah 62. No longer will they call you deserted or your name or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. Watch this. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. That's a powerful image. It's a powerful thing to think of. Sometimes we think about the way that we relate to God and we think about these different images and pictures. And sometimes this whole one of the bride of Christ in the New Testament, it gets lost on us because we're trying to understand what does that look like? We know the human entity, but I love this Old Testament reference. As the groom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God takes intense pleasure in his people. And with this great sense of anticipation and joy, looking forward to this, this culmination of things. Obviously in the New Testament, we're familiar with this picture in Ephesians 5, where much is said using the idea of talking about the idea of, of responses of wives to husbands and husbands to wives, but it's using the imagery of, of the church being likened to the bride of Christ and the husband being likened to, um, to that of the groom, to Jesus himself. And then we see even at the final end, last week we talked about this eternal life that Jesus came to bring. And we read in the culmination of Revelation, two images about the bride. One is representing to the new Jerusalem coming down and the other is to the people of God. From Revelation 21 verse two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and listen to this language, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed, for her husband. So looking upon the city with great anticipation, great beauty. One of the seven angels, verse nine, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
So this imagery of groom and bride is all over the Bible, even before what we read in John chapter three, but obviously after it as well. So now that Jesus is being recognized as the Messiah that John came to proclaim, John can say, my joy is complete. This is what I was after. This is what I came to do. This posture of joy is not a rivalry with the groom. It isn't attempting to maintain a hold on his influence or on his popularity, but there is a sense of trailing, a trailing trend of defocus, which is only supposed to continue as the focus upon Jesus rightly should only increase. Look in your notes. There's a simple question for us to consider today. What are the areas in your life in which you still desire your interests, your desires, and your notoriety to be prime over Jesus's interests, Jesus's desires, and Jesus's notoriety? It's a simple reflective question. I can't answer that for you. You'd have to think about that for yourself. But think of it in these kinds of terms. How is this reflected in your ambitions for acceptance or belonging? How is this demonstrated in your ambitions for comfort and security? How is this shown in your desire to attain and advance and make your name known? These are great litmus test questions for us. And though we are very dissimilar from John the baptizer in so many ways, because he had such a unique function, where we are similar is in the same idea and the same attitude that we are to make much of Christ, that we are to point to him in every area of our lives and saying, he is the one you should be looking at when you see me, not me. I think about this for myself and I think about really what's been an interesting challenge for my whole life. I remember distinctly my youth group in the seventh grade. I, you know, what happened in, in all of seventh grade in my youth group were many, many things, but interestingly enough, the only thing I can remember literally in my seventh grade year was being in a small group with my leader and my friends. There's probably 10 of us in a group. And the question that Willie was going through was simply asking the stock questions he was given. And one of them was that basic one. That's a great question to ask a middle schooler. What do you wanna be someday? What do you wanna be? And going around the circle, I'm 13 years old, going around the circle, I heard the answers that I think Willie was expecting. I wanna be a fireman, I wanna be a policeman, I wanna be a major league baseball player. All these things were going around. I'm towards the end and Willie comes to me and says, Todd, what about you? Here's my response without even blinking, famous. <laughs> if I'd have been Willie, I would have done the same thing he did. Oh, that's interesting. What an interesting thing coming from a middle school kid. And I look back on that and I've walked that through a few times in my brain in the years since. And I know the backstory of my life of what was going on in the seventh grade that would actually make me wanna say that. But it's interesting at the root, back to the Carson quote we looked at earlier today, our basic humanity wants to step in the place of God, wants to make much of us, rather than make much of him. And what we have to do in that tension is to not only recognize the greatness of who he is and how he absolutely deserves all of the attention, rightfully so, but in light of that, realizing God, are there places in my life where I'm holding on to that for me? 
I want to see my name in this area. I want to have this kind of knownness among this group of people. I want to be who people think of when blank happens. Man, that's a great self-evident test to say, God, where are those areas? And the reason I ask you the question, I ask me the question today, isn't to heap more guilt on us, but is to say this, when we see, when we come to the light of who Jesus is, it only makes sense. There is absolutely no even hesitation of, well, who should be getting the credit? Who should be getting the light? Who should be getting the honor? He's absolutely deserving. The only one deserving. And so we look at those areas of our lives and we say, God, where is it still that you need to do a work and that I need to surrender over my fascination with myself so that in the words of John, he must become greater and I must become less. Wearsby makes a great point of some transitions all the way through John chapter three. Listen to what he says. The word must, M-U-S-T, the word must is used in three significant ways in this chapter. There is the must of the sinner, John 3, 7, you you must be born again. There is the must of the savior. As Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must, must the son of man be lifted up. And there is the must of the servant. He must increase, I must decrease. That's a powerful observation, three musts in the chapter three of John. Must of the sinner, must of the savior, must of the servant. Finally today, number three, you vouch for the truthfulness of the father when you believe in his son. You vouch for the truthfulness of the father when you believe in the son. John 3, 31, the one who comes from above is above all. And the one, now, and we'll say this in a minute, this is John now, the gospel writer. This is more commentary. The one who is above, uh, from above is above all. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Verse 33, however, whoever, I'm sorry, has accepted it, has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. So we note that John, the gospel writer now, is back at it again. He's filling in commentary. He's done this all the way through and we benefit from it. He's kind of giving some big summary ideas from chapter three. We're gonna make a huge shift next week when we go to John chapter four, but he's kind of summarizing some big themes. The idea that the one who is from above is above all. And he testifies truthfully on behalf of his father. He's filled with the spirit without limit. And the father's entrusted all things to him because it's his son. And in the final sentence, it recaptures what we looked at last week. That belief in the son provides eternal life for those who would otherwise be condemned. Previously in this chapter, we read of Jesus's one of a kind and unique authority understanding that he is the one who has come down from heaven. From John 3, 13, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, 
the Son of Man. And remember, the Son of Man is a title from Daniel 7 that's all about authority, all about a sense of focus, all about this idea of sovereignty that was going to be placed in his hand. So Jesus is invoking that title with a guy who had memorized Daniel chapter 7. We'll see much in the coming chapters in the book of John about the testimony of Jesus and the testimony of the Father. That word is going to come up a lot. But today what we read is, is that he both bears testimony of the Father, but people are not responding. People are hesitant to believe that what he's saying is true. And what he has seen he knows is true because he's from above. But those who do believe, they certify that God is truthful. This Greek word certify was interesting to me. I wanted to look at it and it basically, this is what it means. It means to seal or affix with a signet ring or another instrument to stamp. It means to attest ownership, authorizing or validating what is sealed. So look in your notes. Another way of saying it, when you believe in Jesus's testimony about himself and the father, it's like you're signing your name. It's like you're signing your name to the validity of what you've heard, verifying that God is truthful about what he's communicated about the son. Now make note, God doesn't need your signature. <laughs> Meaning it's not as though, I don't know if this is really true if I don't get enough people to sign. But what we are saying is, this is true. It's true of what Jesus is communicating about the father. It's true that Jesus is saying, and I'm his one of a kind unique son. And when we believe that, it's like signing our name to it. It's certifying it, validating it, vouching for the fact that we believe that Jesus's testimony is accurate. That's a powerful thing because we talk sometimes about what does it mean to put your faith in Christ? When is it that we step over that line in belief? That's an interesting way to think about it. It's when I sign my name to it. When I verify that I believe that this is the truth. Jesus goes on to say that he's in a unique spokesperson type of role with the Father. I believe what he's doing is, I think that what John is doing, John is uh, using a comparison. What has this whole chapter, this last part of the chapter been about are the comparisons between John the baptizer and Jesus. John has no problem with the comparisons. He's the Messiah, I'm not. But I think John the gospel writer is going back and he's comparing Jesus to John the baptizer and all the other prophets of the former covenant who were by nature, according to the role, the role prophet meant mouthpiece, spokesperson, one who speaks on behalf of God. And Jesus obviously is that same thing. He's a spokesperson, but he's way different. He's the son of God. No prophet ever was. And what he's saying is not only accurate and true, he does so with a limitless amount of the spirit. <clears throat> what would God, we look in the former covenant and we would see, and God gave the spirit to this prophet for a limited amount of time for a limited focus. John is saying Jesus is so different. He's the son of God and he has the spirit without limit. So he's not like these former prophets. And unlike any other former prophets, Yahweh loves the son deeply as a father relationship to him. And the son has been entrusted with all that is the father's. No prophet ever talked that way. And so sometimes again, you'll hear in conversations, you know, I think Jesus was a great teacher. I think Jesus was a wonderful Jewish rabbi. Jesus himself, and in this case, John from his gospel doesn't give us that option. 
doesn't allow us to see Jesus for anything less than he is one and the same with the Father. That's how the New Testament portrays him. There was never a prophet who had that kind of intimacy, that kind of limitless spirit, that kind of authority that the Son has. And John told us as much at the very beginning, back in December, when we were going through John 1, 1 through 18. This is one of the mega themes that we found in John 1 was the father-son relationship. Look at John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John closes chapter three with a summary of some words like he shared. Last week was powerful. We saw this incredible promise that if you believe in his name, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. It's like completely the opposite. You will not be cut off for eternity, but instead you will have life for eternity. That's this amazing promise. But the words that followed right after that have some really incredibly eye-opening realities about the fact that Jesus didn't come to you to offer you something that you could go, eh, maybe, maybe not. He came to you, he came to us as a people condemned who need him desperately and have no hope aside from him. John chapter three, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, watch, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. John says it a little different at the end of the chapter, God's wrath remains on him. That word wrath from that Greek word, it implies not a sudden outburst, not rage, but it implies rather being a fixed, controlled, passionate feeling against sin. I love this phrase, a settled indignation. That's what God's wrath means. And it means that we are under that as long as we have not put our belief in the son. So would you and I this week take stock of who Jesus is, the son of God, the groom, who's preparing for his bride, the spokesperson of the father overflowing limitlessly with the spirit and rightly align our aspirations to make much of him and not of us. Follow John's example by prioritizing Jesus's prominence in your life over your own interests. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today just so um, grateful for what we're learning week by week in John's gospel. And every week, God, you are laying out what it means to be drawn close, what it means to be invited to come close and to know you, to know the Son, and to recognize, God, when we see those things more clearly, interestingly enough, we see ourselves more clearly too. And so this week, would we make much of the Son? Would we have the attitude of John that he must increase and we must decrease? And would our lives keep pointing to Jesus in every facet that we would make him known? If you're here today and you have not yet responded to the gospel, you've not yet said, Jesus, I recognize what you did for me. As Paul was leading us in communion today, you, you've never said, Jesus, it is your body and your blood that accomplished forgiveness and redemption for me, not just for the world, not just for people, but for me then I want to tell you two powerful things. I want to tell you that according to what we just read, the wrath of God remains on you. Those are sobering words. 
in words that I don't say lightly, in words I say with zero joy, but it's the truth. So what I would want to tell you though, the other thing is you don't have to remain in that position, that you can actually do something about it because of what Jesus has done already for you. You can A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior, simply recognize what God already knows. B, believe. Believe that this Jesus we've talked about today who is come from above, that he came not only to bear testimony to the Father, but he came to present himself as a sacrifice for you. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my faith, my trust, my confidence in what you've accomplished for me, not what I can somehow do to earn something from you. And the Bible says when you will pray a prayer that admits and believes and chooses, it's like signing your name to attest for the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. And I would encourage you, make that decision today. Don't, don't take another step without doing that. And know this eternal life that is found in the Son. Father, we love you. Thank you for your immense, extravagant love over us. And would we today indeed lift you up, point to you that you are the King of Kings. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.